Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. So I have a confession to make. Even though earlier in the service I was encouraging you not to have anxiety, uh, these days I find myself filled with anxiety because Lori and I, after 10 years living in our house, are about to embark on some renovation projects, which we've never done before. And all I know about renovation comes from watching home renovation shows. And, and what that has led me to believe is that, that it, it all goes terribly wrong and you, you can't stop it. And so I'm, I'm anticipating many adventures along the way as we uh, live up to those words in the front of the order of worship, letting good things run wild. Um, but I've had it on my mind a lot. Uh, the other day, the UPS man arrived to deliver boxes of tile. And as he was rolling them into the garage, I was walking with him, and he turns to me and asks, are you going to lay this yourself? And I kind of burst into laughter. Like, like you're, you're not a good judge of character. Obviously, you're not able to size people up. Definitely, I'm, I'm not going to be doing that at all. But, uh, but I do daydream about doing things like that. I do wish I was the kind of person who could do that sort of thing, uh, just handle it all myself, not need any help, and just do a perfect job. And so I, I do find myself, especially now, watching a lot of renovation shows and, and daydreaming what it would be like. It's interesting the way people talk about these projects and the goals behind these projects and get pretty emotional about what's going on, uh, especially... I've noticed there's, there's a way of speaking about master bedrooms that I find interesting. You can renovate any other room in the house to be any kind of thing, to have any sort of vibe or feel, style, whatever. But when it comes to the master bedroom, that is a sanctuary. It's supposed to be like a spa. The colors should be soothing. All of the fixtures should look like you're in a high-end hotel. It's It's a a citadel of bliss. It's a refuge. And it makes you imagine, you know, this is the place where the parents can escape. They can get away. They can think about what their lives used to be like. (laughs) If the door is sufficiently reinforced, they can stay undisturbed and in comfort for minutes at a time. And that's the way we think about this place within the house. This is a, 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 it's a kind of retreat without even having to leave. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to go on vacation. You just walk into that newly renovated master bedroom and and all the cares of the world can't touch you anymore unless they come knocking on the door and you feel morally obligated to open it. It's a refuge. It's a refuge. And when we think about refuge, that's the way we tend to think about it. In our service, if you've been paying attention to the words that have been spoken, we've, uh, we've sung these words. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. When our service began with our call to worship, you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy, a refuge, a retreat. It's what we look to God to be, to be our citadel, against all of the cares and the concerns that press in against us. And in Joshua 20, 
we find that God cares about building refuges. But the refuges are not exactly the way that we're accustomed to thinking of them. When we think of refuge, we think of retreat, of escape, of getting away from it all. But the refuges that God builds are refuges from the consequences of your own actions, a refuge from your own guilt. Not that it would be nice to get away, that it would be relaxing to get away. But if we don't get away, we're doomed. A refuge where the stakes are that high. During the the time of the conquest that we've seen in Joshua, and now this time of settlement where the inheritance is being divided up, one of the things that we see happen again and again is that commandments, instructions that were given in the days of Moses are now, 45 years later, being carried out, implemented. We saw this last time with the promise that Moses made to Caleb. After 45 years, that promise is fulfilled. We also see it with institutions emerging. As the land is settled, it takes a structure. It will need a government. It will have to run a certain way. And so things that when the people were wandering in the wilderness were hypothetical, were sort of instructions for the future, now those things have to be implemented. And that's what's happening here in Joshua chapter 20. The idea that in the promised land, certain cities would be set apart as cities of refuge was not new. This is something that God had hinted to Moses in Exodus. And then later on in the book of Numbers, chapter 35, we get a lot of detail about how these cities of refuge are meant to work. In Deuteronomy, it comes up again, and some of the cities of refuge, those that are outside on the other side of the River of Jordan, are actually established. And Moses gives commands that once you take the promised land, you will set up these cities. And now... It's time for that to happen. So we come to Joshua, and we see that Joshua is doing the things that he's been told to do by Moses. So this is Joshua chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. And they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country, Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah, 
And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. It's the word of the Lord, and it teaches us things. Obviously, the judicial component of this is no longer in effect for us. We do not live in the ancient nation of Israel. This isn't the way our justice system works, and we should probably be grateful that it doesn't operate this way. If you find yourself, uh, through no fault of your own, accidentally causing the death of another person, in this context, you would be subject to revenge. Uh, A kinsman of the person who had been killed had the right to take your life in response, an eye for an eye, that principle of, of balance, of justice. But if you weren't guilty of murder, there was an escape, there was a refuge, you just had to reach the city of refuge, that sanctuary. And when you were there, the avenger of blood could not touch you. Even though this system is no longer in effect, the, the shape of it does tell us things about God. Sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we see it as a book that because so much of it has been fulfilled, doesn't apply today, we tell ourselves it's not relevant. But if we go back and we look, as we've seen time and again, if we look with New Testament eyes, we find layers, suggestive, significant things in the way that God ordered his people the way that he implemented these things. And so these cities of refuge, they still teach us something. They still teach us something about God, about ourselves, and even about the gospel. What do they teach us about God? What do the fact of these cities of refuge teach us about our God? Well, for one thing, they teach us that God cares about justice now. God cares about justice now. Look, we've admitted that the justice system that's reflected here is perhaps not ideal. It's not perfect. Your ability to escape the avenger of blood really depends on your presence of mind to flee immediately. It really depends on the city of refuge not being too far away on your being able to get there before the avenger gets to you. That's not the way that we would like these things to work so we can see flaws in the system. We can also see flaws in our own system. If you've ever had firsthand experience of our legal system, of our system of justice, you've probably seen that things are not as tidy and perfect and precise as we would like. Sometimes... uh, Court officials complain about something they call the DNA effect, which is that it's hard to get juries to convict anymore without concrete scientific evidence. If you think about that, that could be a good thing, because what it says is it's hard to get people to to render verdicts without having certain knowledge. 
That's not such a bad thing. Compared to this system of justice in the Old Testament, ours seems pretty good. But when we pay attention to the details, we can see that there are many flaws. But hey, it's a fallen world. Like sin is in this world and there's no perfect justice. We look forward to perfect justice in times to come. It's impossible to execute justice perfectly now. So maybe the attitude we ought to take is, it's not a big deal. Of course there's going to be injustice all around us. That's the nature of living in a sinful world and we need to accept that. We need to make peace with that and look forward to the world to come. And that might sound like a pious thing to do. It might sound like a mature thing to do, but it isn't what God does, interestingly enough. God doesn't look down and say, you know what, sometimes you're going to cause the death of someone and you're not going to intend to do it, and then the avenger of blood is going to come and kill you, and, you know, it's not just, but what can you do? We live in a fallen world. Don't worry about it. I'll sort it all out at the end. Do not fret over these minor details of injustice. That could be God's attitude, but it's not. God knows that human beings are never going to do perfect justice. Their judgment will always be clouded and flawed by sin, and yet he builds into the system this desire, this demand, this priority on justice, on doing justice now, even in a fallen world even surrounded by imperfection, even when we can never achieve the thing that we're striving for, God says, strive anyway. Do justice. Love it the way I love it. And he makes provision for it in the here and now. But he does more than honor the principle of justice. It's interesting, in Deuteronomy 19, there's an explanation given for why the cities are located where they are. We've just seen in our text the location of the cities, but reading these things out loud without having a map in front of you, the significance may not occur to you. But these are the instructions that Moses gives in Deuteronomy 19. He says, You shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession so that any manslayer can flee to them. In other words, take the land as a whole, divide it up into sections, and place the cities of refuge within those places so that they are accessible. Because it's not enough to know that somewhere over the horizon there's a city of refuge if only you could find it. The cities are actually placed so that they can be reached. God doesn't just care about justice. He cares that justice is accessible. We should strive for it. We should make it accessible, make it available. It's interesting, too, that these cities of refuge, the reason why they come at this point in the narrative in chapter 20 is that we're now dealing with the inheritance, the division of of land for the tribe of Levi. The Levites, from whom the Levitical priests come, this priestly tribe, it's their cities. Cities among the cities of the Levites that are the cities of refuge. These are priestly cities. And I think that's significant. 
In our text in verse 4, we read these words, He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. So these priestly cities are told that when these people, these manslayers, who have caused the death of another, come to your city and present themselves, you are to give them a place, to welcome them in your midst. You can only imagine what this did to the land values in the cities of refuge, cities whose purpose is to take killers and give them a place and shelter them from the consequences of killing. This was a task given to priestly cities. And it suggests to us not only that God cares about justice, that he cares about the accessibility of justice, but that his church, that his people, that that his clergy have a role to play in this as well. In the welcoming of these refugees, these guilty parties, It's not enough to love justice. It's not enough to wish to see it done, but we must work for justice as well. And this is a task that these priestly cities find themselves engaged in. It's not immediately clear from our text because this is a condensation of a much longer one in Numbers 35. But the the way that this system worked is kind of interesting. Uh, The refugee, the manslayer, comes to the city. He's interviewed by the elders of the city to kind of establish, uh, let's say, probable cause, to to hear the facts of the case, to hear him say, I did not kill intentionally. And then he's received into the city. He's given a place. And the idea is that he's being protected until his day in court. But even when that day in court comes, he's still guilty. He still needs a refuge, even if he's found only to be guilty of manslaughter. And so he abides in this city where he's protected. But that need to be sheltered isn't perpetual. It actually has an end date. There's a time when all of the manslayers inside the city of refuge can walk free again. And the timing is interesting. Listen to this. This is verse 6 in our text. He shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. So it's the death of the high priest. Whoever's high priest at that time, when he dies then all those who sought refuge in the city can walk free again, can go back to their homes and live freely in the death of whoever is the high priest. I don't know how much truth there is to this, but when you read about this, there's um, some commentary that says that it was a tradition for the mother of the high priest to give gifts, clothing, and that sort of thing to the refugees so that they didn't wish for the death of her son. Right? I imagine it wasn't always comfortable being the high priest under these circumstances when the city was full. But you get the idea. Interesting, interesting that that should be the event. 
that leads to the ability to walk free. So the fact that these cities existed long ago suggests to us that God cares about justice in the present, and he wants it to be accessible. And also that despite like our understanding of separation of church and state, that the church still has some responsibility towards seeing justice done in the land, because this honors God and is something that he expects from us. These are good lessons for us, things we can apply. I think these cities can teach us more than that. They teach us more than God's care for justice, because they also teach us something about ourselves. The need for refuge reveals something about the human condition. It reveals that bad things are beyond your control. The people who needed the cities of refuge, the people these cities were for, were people who had taken a life without meaning to. They'd done it without intent. They'd done it accidentally. They hadn't woken up that morning thinking, today's the day when I settle the score. No, it it was a day like any other day. They had woken up like you did this morning, not expecting to do anything, not expecting that later on down the line, they would cause the death of another person and have to flee for their lives. All of those things happened, and you can imagine that the person they happened to felt like a victim of circumstances. Didn't feel like like I was the one who did this. Felt like all these things happened to me. And now my whole life has been changed. This thing that I did, but I didn't mean to do, that I, I would have prevented if I could have, now suddenly has turned everything upside down and I can't go home. It's not safe to be with my family. I have to flee everything that I know. That's not the way that they expected to live. Those weren't choices that they made. All of those circumstances were outside their control. They had to flee. Even though they did not intend to do harm, the avenger of blood was still after them. There's something for us in that. Because it's easy for us to look at people who find themselves before the judge, who find themselves in difficulty and crisis, and imagine that the reason they're there and I'm here is because they made bad choices and I made good choices. Because they're not so smart and I'm pretty smart. It's easy for us to make those kind of judgments. But remember, things have happened to you. You've done things. You've been guilty of things that you didn't intend to do. You've hurt people that you didn't mean to hurt. You've broken things you didn't mean to break. And if you could go back and undo it all, you would. If you could turn back the clock and not do what you did, you wouldn't. Because the harm that it caused was so great, so much more than anything you anticipated. You've been there. You know this. You've done more harm than you'd like to admit. The difference a lot of times is that we don't always have to live the consequences of the things we do. 
Sometimes the people that we harm and break forgive us instead of hurting us. Sometimes we do harm and our guilt is never established. Nobody realizes what we've done and we keep it secret. But if we're honest with ourselves, we all know that we've done harm. Harm we didn't intend. And it was outside our control. We felt powerless. Like all of the the, the forces conspiring against us were unstoppable. That we were like driven by a tide of events. There was no escape. The difference is that we're not just people who fell into the water and were carried by the tide. We jumped. We entered into our own troubles. We did what we shouldn't have done. Whether we intended to or not, we did cause the harm. And there's a guilt that attaches to that. I was the one little Baptist kid on the block. Everybody else was Roman Catholic. My Catholic friends, some of them were atheists, but if you had told them they weren't Catholics, they would have been angry. Of course I'm Catholic, I just don't believe in God. Because that's how they'd grown up, that's how they'd been raised. And uh, they had funny names. My best friend, his name was Marcellus. Like a Roman centurion name, Marcellus. And we would go out and play together, and and, uh, these were different times. So we made a lot of our own toys, and uh, made them out of wood and all sorts of weird things. My pirate costume consisted of a suede vest with fringe that I had inherited somewhere, a cowboy hat, and uh, I just had to tell you I was meant to be a pirate and you used your imagination. And, of course, my pirate weapon was a whip because, in my mind, that's what pirates had. I don't know why. My whip was a length of electrical cable that I'd found on the ground and sort of coiled up. And so, basically... I swung this this cable around as we were playing, and uh, I saw my friend Marcellus, who was a little smaller than I was. All of my friends were a little smaller than I was. And uh, I thought, you know, it would be funny, as I'm I'm spinning this around, it would be funny to just sort of like, you know, uh, spin it over towards him as he's running along. And so that's what I did. He was running along, and and, and I, I whipped that cable out, and it was, there's something beautiful about it. it. It wrapped around his body and it kept going. It sort of spun around him and I saw my moment. And so I pulled really hard and just like a cartoon, he spun in the other direction as the whip pulled him like, like, a, like a yo-yo. He kind of spun out and hit the ground and I was, it was the best moment in my childhood. I mean, everything had worked to plan. It was amazing. We didn't have smartphones to capture this stuff on video, but I wish we had, and I could show you this clip. It was a moment of triumph. And then I realized that Marcellus didn't, he wasn't getting up. He was on the ground, and he was weeping, bitter tears. He hadn't been lacerated. He wasn't bleeding or anything. The pain was psychological because he'd been hurt by his friends. The bigger kids weren't always nice with us. We didn't get to play with them, but we played with each other. We were friends. We We were buddies. We were close, partners, always. And now suddenly I'd turned on him and and humiliated him and, and hurt him. And he was devastated. 
And he finally got up, still crying, and started stumbling back to his house. And I, you know, told him, hey, you know, you should stay. It's not a big deal. Uh, because I had compassion, but also fear that the Avenger of Blood, his mom, <laughs> might hunt me down. And so I took my cable, and I chased after him, and I tried to give it to him. And I said, here, you can do it to me. And if you've ever been a child who's done similar things, you know that that's what comes to mind. That's the way to, to pay the debt, to balance it out. I know I've done something horrible. I didn't intend to do it, but I know the solution. And the solution is for you to do to me what I did to you. And then it'll be balanced. It'll be equal. And that made sense in my mind. It did not make sense in his mind. And uh, he went home and the Avenger of Blood did talk to my mom and, and some, some vengeance did occur. <laughs> the harm I did was unintentional, but the guilt was real and I felt it. I knew I had done wrong when I saw the consequences and I knew that it had to be paid for. I knew something had to be done and the only thing I could think was to offer myself. Unfortunately, sometimes we do things and offering yourself is not enough. It won't pay. The price has to be paid. Blood for blood. That's the principle in operation. You've taken a life. The avenger of blood balances things, does justice by taking yours. A life for a life. In law, we don't operate by this principle anymore, but it does resonate with us. We've talked about this before. It's not an accident that so many of our movies are about revenge, about justice, payback, that sort of thing. That you know, like in real life, if somebody does something bad to you, you shouldn't do like, like bad times ten to them. But you can watch that in a movie and it feels so satisfying. You know, like, like you killed someone beloved to me, so I killed everyone you've ever looked at. And it feels right. Like it feels there's satisfaction in it. And you always save like the worst person for last. And that, that makes it especially good. That, that impulse towards revenge, it resonates with us because we see a debt exists and it needs to be paid. We see injustice and we say they shouldn't get away with it. Something needs to be done about that. But if you're more thoughtful, you look inside yourself and you realize, I won't get away with it either. Something has to be done about what I've done as well. And that's where the existence of these cities of refuge, of this idea of refuge, teaches us something not just about ourselves, but also about the gospel and our need for it. Institutions fail. Justice systems rise and fall like governments you see this happening. All of these Old Testament institutions that are established, they're not perfect, and ultimately they, they, they fall, they topple. The conquest, it's so glorious, but it doesn't quite complete itself. The kingdom is established and looks good for a little while, and then it divides and ultimately is overcome. This is the same. The cities of refuge, historically speaking, started off great, but over time came to be abused in ways that you can imagine, came to be uh, disregarded, and eventually this, this system was no longer in place. All these failures of institutions God established and created 
It's interesting because each one of them, when we peel back the layers, they're rich in symbolism and significance. But they're not very effective in reality, ultimately. I think even in their failure, they teach us something. They teach us that what they promise, they cannot deliver. That the means for reigning, the, the means for peace cannot be an earthly kingdom. Cannot be land. The means for justice cannot be cities of refuge. Something more is necessary. The church is an institution. And it's natural to ask the question is this going to fail too? seems that way sometimes. It seems sometimes like it already has, and this is just kind of like the twilight. A few people haven't realized that this this venture is already over. But the church is a refuge, a refuge for sinners. The law reveals our sinfulness, but not to condemn us, to show us how great our need for refuge is, to awaken us. The law is like a voice that says to you, flee. Flee to the city of refuge. Flee to the place of refuge. Otherwise, you will have to stand on the day of consequences. The gospel is like a city of refuge. It receives us. It welcomes us. It makes a place for us, and it says, stay here until the death of the high priest frees you. And then you can walk free. It's amazing. Looking at the way that these cities are created, uh, with New Testament eyes, you think, wow, this is so on the nose. I mean, the death of the high priest, the shedding of the blood of the high priest is what sets you free? How Christian can you get in the book of Joshua? I mean, this speaks volumes, it preaches, because the church is a community built by the sacrifice of the high priest, built by the blood that was shed on the cross. This is the city sealed by the Spirit, where the promise of salvation lives, which is why we can be encouraged that this church the church, the people of God, will endure because it is the inheritor of a promise. The author of Hebrews says you can be encouraged because God, in making the promise to Abraham that we have inherited, swore by himself. When people swear an oath, they're appealing to a higher authority to guarantee that what they've committed to will actually be done. There is no higher authority to whom God can appeal, so God swears by himself. Hebrews says it this way, When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We can be encouraged because those who have fled to Christ for refuge will receive it 
and will receive more than that. The promise is not just that Christ will be a sanctuary for you, that the gospel insulates you from the consequences of what you've done. It promises that you will walk free in the life to come. The great high priest has offered himself up as a sacrifice so that you can be free of all the guilt. You can escape the just wrath. Christ is our great high priest. His atoning death means that all who come to him will find refuge. And all who take refuge in him will walk free. What we have to do is realize the harm that we've done and flee to him for refuge. You may not have meant it. You may think compared to others, your crimes are not so bad. But the avenger of blood will do justice. Flee. Flee for refuge. Live within the boundaries of that refuge. Be in the church. Live within it. Commit yourself to it. Don't wander in and out of the refuge. And let Christ's blood make you free. You weren't meant to be a lawbreaker. You weren't meant to be a manslayer. The harm that you've done, it's not a reflection of what you are and who you were made to be. You weren't meant to be guilty. You were meant to be free. And Christ, and Christ alone, has the power to make you free indeed. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.